are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 25 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Keanu Reeves' controversial take on Bitcoin, Vanguard plans their own blockchain network, and two more fantastic interviews. On with the news. Okay, joining me for the news as ever is the wonderful at Colin G. Platt back in France. How are you, sir? Uh, doing fantastic. <laughs> You're feeling better at being away from the cold of London? Oh, it's still cold down here, man. <laughs> oh, it's uh, cold everywhere, except in the world of blockchain, which is hot, hot, hot. Before we start, we just have to let you know that uh, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with a 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. Now let's dive straight in, Colin. First story on the FT, speaking about how mainstream this subject is getting, um, the FT.com talks about dueling Bitcoin futures going head to head as the CME launches their contract, I believe. So we seem to have been talking about this for the last few weeks. So uh, for anybody who wants a recap of what a futures product is or options, check out episodes 21, 22, 23 and 24 of Blockchain Insider. But let's just dive right in. We, we have a competition. There are more than one piece. People offering these sorts of products uh, in the Bitcoin market. What does it all mean, Colin? Well, so what what was really interesting, this is something that, um, as you said, we've been talking about for a long time. The CME has finally come live as of uh, yesterday when we were recording this. Um, a lot of people bought up Bitcoin in anticipation. A lot of people talked about how you might have hedge funds jumping in both with the SIBO announcement that, that came out of it a week ago and with the CME announcement now of launching futures, that there could be a lot of people selling or shorting Bitcoin. What that means is essentially uh, they profit when the price of something goes down. Um, we haven't really seen that happen. Um, the price moved around a little bit, which we won't really get into too much, but um, nothing major has really happened. Uh, one thing I will note is um, the volumes on, on both the SIBO um, that launched last week and the CME were much smaller than um, maybe more of their traditional products uh, on things that uh, they've been trading for a long time, things like uh, interest rate derivatives or equity derivatives or uh, agricultural derivatives, like uh, the price of wheat or corn or oil or something like that. Um, so it, it is still a very small business for them. I, I just pulled this up before we got on the show. Um, if if the CME was an exchange, it would be somewhere around the 27th uh, largest exchange in the world for trading cryptocurrencies. So it's not exactly to say that this has completely changed everything. And we're now in, in the world where every hedge fund in the world is trading Bitcoin, though we'll, we'll talk about one that is later in the show. Um, but it is it is a good start. And it is a sign of maturity and legitimacy that we didn't have three weeks ago. And also, it being open doesn't mean that there's no demand there. If it's not all taken in the first week, it's going to take people time to move into that space. And it's, I think it's a big signal, the fact that such a, a classical institution uh, such as the CME and such as SIBO have launched this product. Uh, it says that there's institutional interest out there, which is kind of reinforcing this belief that the institutions will come in, therefore, there'll be more liquidity coming to Bitcoin, therefore, um, the price will go up. Uh, but of course, shorting doesn't 
doesn't necessarily mean the price could go up. It could create downward pressure. Um, but there's a great clip um, I saw, I think it was on Bloomberg, of the uh, Winklevoss twins challenging D- Jamie Dimon to go short on Bitcoin because now you can profit from the price decreasing for the first time. So um, interesting times for sure, Colin. Absolutely. And I think I think one thing that I'll just add on, on top of this is um, we're having a lot of recent conversations with people in, in our normal day-to-day job. And a, a lot of these companies are interested in Bitcoin, maybe have been in Bitcoin for, for a while now. Um, and they have pointed out that there aren't a lot of in solid institutional focused um, Bitcoin exchanges or places where they can trade cryptocurrencies. So the platforms that you and I might use for individual moving money around are the same things that very large companies and hedge funds have to go through as well. So, um, I mean, to me, the big change here, and, and you mentioned the Winklevoss twins, uh, what they're trying to build with Gemini, uh, all, all come to kind of bring those rails in for somebody like Jamie Dimon to go short Bitcoin or long Bitcoin if at some point JP Morgan decides they want to get involved. There are, I think, now some fairly well-known OTC desks trading Bitcoin at some serious scale. Um, but as you say, those infrastructure partners that you would expect on, uh, on the more traditional asset classes just aren't there. And if you as a consumer have had problems with Kraken or GDAX lately trying to access it, you're not the only ones. And some of the bigger institutions may be having some of the same problems as well. So there's definitely a need for either these newer exchanges to up their game in terms of their infrastructure, or maybe even an opportunity in the marketplace. Uh, Colin, uh, next story, um, given that you're back in France, uh, this one seems like it might have been something you picked out. Story on Reuters about the French finance minister calling for Bitcoin regulation debate at the G20. Yeah, I, uh, this is really interesting. I, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. Uh, Bruno Le Maire, who's the finance minister in France, uh, talked about how France was trying to be open to innovation, and and we made a good joke about Brexit on this, um, bringing people in to use blockchain to list securities, um, something uh, akin to what Nivora has done. Um, Now he's come through and said in the next meeting, um, he's going to talk to the the upcoming G20 president. So G20 obviously being a a group of the 20 largest economies in the world and the leaders in that to talk about all kinds of things from uh, the economy to um, human rights. So the next one is in Argentina. Argentina, for those who follow Bitcoin, is a very large market, actually, for the size of the country for Bitcoin. Um, a lot of that has been attributed to um, the instability in the in the country's finances. Uh, they defaulted, I believe, three times in their history on their debt. Uh, their money's gone through massive hyperinflation on multiple occasions. So the, the notion of using Bitcoin is something that people might be willing to take a gamble on. So uh, really interesting to see that on one hand, um, he's talking about uh, we need to be more open to innovation at the same time he's saying uh, let me get together with this person who's almost probably um, the the most well-placed person to talk about bitcoin being used by the masses uh, and said we need to sit down and we need to talk about this thing before it gets out of hand Uh, so that tells me two things first at some point regulators will say something and it hasn't yet gotten out of hand so we talk about the price ramping up by what two hundred thousand times or whatever uh, over the last few years um, they don't think it's quite large enough to, to warrant uh, completely blocking access or trying something more severe quite yet but it still could come it could come indeed colin there's definitely the uh, increased pressure coming from regulators because i think they're concerned about uh, some of the uh, some of those things that you pointed out but who's not concerned about them well uh, the one person that's not concerned about them is mr keanu reeves 
uh, John Wick himself, in yournewswire.com, uh, Keanu Reeves says Bitcoin will destroy the new world order. And I can picture his voice in my head. Um, this is this is the quote from him. Uh, Bitcoin isn't a short-term trend, and that worries the elites. People are sick and tired of being controlled by the new world order, seeing the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Bitcoin is giving power back to the people, and it will probably end up destroying the new world order. Uh, like god bless him um love a bit of uh john wick love a bit of the matrix but uh this is probably a bit of an oversimplification of something that actually maybe has something to it um bitcoin was i think at its birth a bit anti-establishment um it did bring about a new government model and a new way of thinking of about how we design infrastructure and community um as as people um and i guess this is kind of more evidence of it being mainstreamed um but uh how how serious do you think that people cottoning onto these ideas are and do you uh and do you play with the idea of remaking financial services remaking governments in a short time frame um and the reactions from the french minister and people needing to discuss this as the g20 seeing it's a real credible serious uh threat to to their to the way they're organized yeah so you and i had a conversation earlier this week we were kind of joking about this um i mean to me uh, the way i view bitcoin is yes as you said uh libertarians really latched onto this thing when it first came out back in 2000 2010 and said, this is fantastic. This replaces central bank money. Uh, this takes down governments. And there's still a lot of people that um, follow Bitcoin, that invest in Bitcoin, that are very serious about Bitcoin for exactly this reason. Um, and anytime you have somebody who comes out and champions them like uh, Keanu Reeves, and it always takes me back when I was reading this to, to a very famous Bitcoin meme um, of the scene of the Matrix, uh, where um, Keanu Reeves says, you know, are you telling me in the future that I, I can trade Bitcoin for a million dollars? And then it says, you know, no, I'm telling you in the future, you won't have to. So I think it's quite perfect that Keanu Reeves talks about it. But where this is really going is a lot of people come out and say, um, you know, we need to regulate it, or it's a scam, or whatever negative they have about it. And it almost reinforces the people that uh, believe in it. And belief, I think, is the, the exact word here. It's not that um, understand the, the power of it. It's people that truly believe in this vision. And, um, you know, when you have the champions like Keanu Reeves and when you have the establishment coming and saying we're going to squash it or it's useless, it, it makes them buy more and it makes other people buy more. And I think this is what people that are trying to warn the masses about uh, and say, don't look at the returns that are 200,000 uh, percent. Look at the risks here. They really don't get it because this is just propagating the people that believe and they throw more and more money in it and the prices go up and your average Joe, your your nanny goes out and says, I need to buy this. And they are making the bubble worse. When the establishment says this is risky, they're adding fuel to the fire. And it's playing into a narrative that, hey, the establishment doesn't like it. Therefore, they must be scared. Therefore, it must be something that's working. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you can see how it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But there are people um, of, you know, kind of with a strong track record in financial services doing some interesting things without question. Absolutely. And, and a good one that, uh, that you pointed out was uh, Bill Miller. Um, so Bill Miller is a, a hedge fund manager. He's um, recently reported that he has as much as half of his whole fund in Bitcoin. Uh, that sounds awful risky to me. What do you think, Simon? Awfully risky indeed. Half is quite a lot. <laughs> That's like a divorce with your money if it all goes wrong. Um, so yeah, most says they're exploring ways to mitigate risk and that Bitcoin won't be half of the fund for that much longer. But it doesn't mean he's going to be selling Bitcoin. And uh, it was the closest he's come to having half his fund in one asset was the 1990s when he had 20% in AOL um, and close to 20% in Dell and 10% in Fannie Mae. So I mean, this, these guys have been around for a little while. Um, and this was... Um, a 
an interview they did in the Wealth Track podcast uh, last week. So do check out um, another podcast and, and hear from him for yourself. He founded this new partnership in 2016 after a 35-year career at Leg Mason, where he managed a fund that beat the S&P 500 for 15 straight years through 2005. He's known for these concentrated bet, but nothing on the scale of half the fund. So maybe it's a timing thing. Maybe he's just seeing like outsized opportunities in the short term, but it's a, it's a bold bet for sure. And when people say, look, the institutions are here, and as you said a couple of weeks ago, mainstream moment is here, I, I think that's well and truly the case. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that I read in, into the fact of, of what you just said, that he's not planning on selling it, but he is reducing. Um, I think he's going to be selling CME and SIBO futures, to be honest. So um, this is the ability for somebody that already holds it to say, I'm going to fix my price in the future on it. And though he's not necessarily uh, directly going out and saying, I'm going to sell this, he's able to make some money uh, on that without further taking uh, risk, or he's actually reducing risk. Um, and, and given the prices on this for anybody that's familiar with how uh, derivatives trade, that can be extremely profitable. So um, I, wish the, I wish him all the luck in the world. Absolutely. But it, we may be in a bubble. Um, there's this famous chart that's been going around from convoyinvestments.com that tracks Bitcoin against tulip mania. And uh, I think it was uh, kind of about doing the rounds about a month ago. And it said that Bitcoin in uh, 2014 to today was halfway up the tulip mania bubble. Um, and it looks like Zero Hedge put something out uh, last week, uh, zerohedge.com, showing that actually um, it's official that Bitcoin is now the biggest bubble in history, having surpassed the tulip mania of 1634 to 1637. So um, the, the CEO of Swift is going to be a very happy chap with this chart, surely. I, I'm sure he will. Um, I, I still I, I have a, a problem with this chart. I mean, it, whether we call it a bubble or not, there's certainly uh, we talk about it as a bubble. Uh, whether it pops the way a bubble pops, we don't yet know. So I think a lot of people are just saying this to get clicks and um, Zero Hedge is, is no stranger to, to clickbait. People like to put something in a historical context to be able to understand it. But on the flip side of that, people always say this time it's different. Um, but there was a great chart I saw earlier that said that um, Bitcoin does periodically drop by 30 to 40 percent uh, every couple of months. It, it does these pullbacks all the time, which in any other market would be a massive, massive bubble bursting. Um, but in Bitcoin is just par for the course with some of its volatility. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that the fact that it has those drops uh, dispels a lot of the myths um, when people start talking about a Ponzi, because generally Ponzi schemes uh, try to avoid that so people don't pull money out. The fact that Bitcoin has prices that move up and down is just a very heavily levered, very narrowly traded asset in my mind. So there's a story here um, on davidgerald.co.uk. So this is going uh, into, a, into a blog, um, and uh, he's got a book as well called Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, which I think is a great title for a book. The public discussion, he says, um, around, and media uh, coverage around Bitcoin makes certain assumption. It assumes Bitcoin has a price that you can expect to sell it around. Bitcoin is like buying a share in a company or a commodity like gold, and the market works that way, and that Bitcoin is liquid. It's reasonably easy to convert your money to Bitcoin and Bitcoin to money back into your bank account. And he says, none of those are true. So what's going on here, Colin? Um, so Mr. Gerard here is is one of those people that I mentioned just earlier in this in this part. Um, he He's the establishment. So he points out what I think are very valid concerns. The price is um, uncertain, especially if you're trying to sell a large quantity of Bitcoin or buy a large quantity of, of Bitcoin. Um, you don't have the same rights that you would uh, if you were to buy a company's stock. Um, I disagree when he says that it's not a commodity. I, I 
I think it is. It's a new type of commodity. Um, and his, his question about liquidity. I know a lot of people have talked about very recently uh, their experience in trying to sell Bitcoin on, on Coinbase or in other exchanges, and it costing a lot of money to get money back in their bank accounts. Um, it, it's certainly it's early days. I mean, we're nine years into this thing, but nine years in financial markets is nothing. And I think uh, by trying to slowly deflate this thing by talking about how these promises aren't aren't met, um, he, he's kind of missed the ticket and and may just further inflame what's coming through. Uh, they are very valid points, and anybody considering buying Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency should really uh, read this thing, take it to heart, understand why he's saying these things before you put any money at risk, especially uh, any money that you can't afford to lose. There is very little downside to being more informed. I would say there's none. <laughs> Next story. Uh, one in American banker, Colin, uh, about an organization called Vanguard, who uh, will be f- very familiar to folks in the US. They have apparently leapfrogged cautious banks by unveiling their own blockchain network plan. And joining us to talk about just this story, we have 11FS's own Pete Townsend. Pete, how are you, sir? Excellent, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Just for our listeners uh, who are new to your good self, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Yep. So I'm a consultant, advisor, speaker. I am the asset management lead for 11FS, working with you guys for a few months now, um, and trying to deliver everything digital to the asset management world and the investing world um, and try to get ahead of the curve with all that. Sounds fun. So this Vanguard uh, story caught your eye. What do we think is going on here? What problem are they solving? Well, if you take a look at what Vanguard do, Vanguard are one of the largest providers of passive funds in the world. Passive investment funds um, follow an index, and they're kind of like following a recipe when you're cooking. All right, and that when you finish the meal and you finish and you get you get it onto the table, um, it's probably going to taste good, but you can't take a heck of a lot of credit for it because you know what you followed a recipe. Um, Index investing, or what are referred to as exchange-traded funds, if that index fund is traded on an exchange, is following a published index. Okay, These indices, there's hundreds of them in the world that exchange-traded funds managed by issuers like Vanguard, BlackRock, so on and so forth, um, that, that they offer to their clients. Um, but what the interesting thing that happens is that the publication point, the index, typically take the S&P 500, Standard & Poor's. What they do is that they charge the fund that uses their index as a benchmark, and that's how Standard & Poor's make money off of all this. Um, sounds great, right? Well, not really, because by 2012, Vanguard had become um, so successful uh, that they ended up needing to uh, have a specific discussion with Standard & Poor's on the fees that uh, that they were charging them to, uh, to to link to their benchmark. So what Vanguard decided to do uh, in 2012 was to work together with a group called CRSP, the Chicago-based uh, Center for Research and Security Prices, to develop some new indices. Um, now, the S&P 500 versus this new bigger one that's really interesting, or, well, five years old now that's very interesting, um, it, it, they're kind of like night and day. So the S&P 500 follows 500 equities, uh, in the U.S. stock market, um, the CRSP total stock market index follows about 3,500. Why this is interesting um, is that Vanguard have been working with CRSP uh, as well as Symbiont. Um, and Symbiont, as many of you know, you know are 
uh, specialists in smart contracts with DLT. Um, and what it looks like they've done is they've built an information sharing framework so that the publication point of the indices, which is CRSP, they build so many rules and methodologies into their indices, such as when they need to rebalance, reconstitute it. There's a lot of technical jargon in all of that that I won't get into, uh, but it's a big job. Um, and then anytime that any index information is, is updated, it needs to be sent on to those that are using uh, that index as a benchmark in their ETF. Um, and it, it's a huge amount of information that needs to be sent on. So every time each ingredient changes ever so slightly, there's a whole downstream, you know, so the book printer has to know it and then all the retailers have to know it. And they're updating the ingredients in these recipes almost uh, every time it happens. But you've got sometimes weeks, if not months of a lag for that to happen and a lot of manual processes for people to be able to figure that out. Is that fair? Absolutely. And if you, uh, you, you have five more people coming to dinner instead of the five that you thought, you need to double the recipe. Um, the other way goes, if you got a few people not turning up, you got to, uh, take a few things out, right? So, but it's still, you've got to put spaghetti bolognese on the table, right? Um, so what it looks like they've done is they built this framework to be able to very, uh, to, to completely streamline the process of providing, uh, these recipe updates really to Vanguard, um, so that Vanguard can then act on them. And it looks like Vanguard have, um, built some internal processing around that in order to streamline how they send trade messages out to the market. Um, and you could think of it in a, a, as a series of nested smart contracts. Um, each individual security in the exchange is developed as a smart contract that is then nested into a smart contract that is the index, um, which is then potentially, and I'm not sure if they've gone this far, but nested this into uh, a smart contract that is an exchange traded fund, um, which really starts to open things up in, in terms of passive fund processing. So what really stood out to me in this, um, Simon Pete, was um, we, we talk a lot about blockchain, specifically cryptocurrencies um, being used for payments. Um, I, I can send you a, a Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin, and maybe I could do that in something like a Ripple as well. I could send you a fraction of a, a euro or, or an XRP Ripple. Now, this is this is very different. This is merely sending you messages through smart contracts to say this is how you should process and you you do everything else after that so they've taken a very different tact but um i think simon we've talked about this before some of these things are are less scary for companies um because they actually help make things more efficient and this being a business where um your revenues are are very low your costs are very high any way that you can reduce those costs is is a benefit and I, i think they said that this isn't just merely a test they've actually got already more than 5,000 validated transactions in doing this so it's it's definitely leapfrogging ahead as, as the article says to um, put something in place and it's not at all a payment system so they're using smart contracts for something very different that is working um, and is showing its benefit right away which is incredibly interesting to me super interesting things happening in the dlt space i'm sure we'll follow this one as it develops Okay, Colin, next story is from the Gnosis.pm uh, website. So Gnosis, um, famous token sale, I think came out of the consensus guys, was it, Colin? I may be wrong, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was consensus. Um, th- there you go. 
realizing things on the fly, keeping it in the podcast. Um, so they, they've actually done a very interesting blog post that looks at the pros and cons of centralized exchanges versus decentralized exchanges, um, and especially when dealing with, with different tokens. So centralized order book exchanges, they talk about um, it's a really good educational piece on how bids and asks and spread works. Uh, highly recommend checking this out on, on their blog. Um, and then they call out a couple of major shortcomings on centralized exchanges. So on centralized exchanges, they say because they're an illiquid market, um, front running is a big problem uh, where um, not even the exchange could act on orders before they're published um, and people can procure profits at the expense of other participants. Um, but then on the up, on the reverse, they also say a decentralized order book, um, they're inherently set up in favor of miners. So they needed to design an exchange that's built on an auction mechanism. So Colin, unpick some of this stuff for me. Um, what are the challenges in centralized exchanges and why? Why? what is front-running? And then what are we seeing in decentralized exchanges? And do we think this, this Gnosis thing makes sense? Yeah, so... Um what one of the first big things that they talk about in here is is the the risk of theft of your funds. So um, for those who have paid attention to Bitcoin for a while, there's there's the fabled story of Mt. Gox or Mt. Gox, uh, which in 2014 de- declared bankruptcy because it lost a, at the time 400 million dollars uh, worth of Bitcoin. Now I think it is is what in in the billions. So uh, their their worry is if you put all this money, all your eggs in one basket, as it were, um, and somebody decides I'm going to steal eggs out of that basket, uh, you don't really have a lot of recourse. So by moving these things into a decentralized ledger of some sorts uh, that happens to have a payment mechanism in it, let's call it a blockchain, um, you reduce that risk because people can't necessarily steal this from you without everybody else agreeing that it should be stolen from you, uh, which is a very high burden of proof. Now, the next thing in there they talk about is something called front running. So this is essentially if you're trading on an exchange and I'm sitting behind and I'm seeing you trading and I'm seeing everybody else trading, well, I can use that information to my advantage and I can go put in an order and execute my order before yours goes through. Um, some exchanges have been accused of this uh, before Bitcoin ever appeared on the scenes. Um, banks have been prosecuted for it. Hedge funds have been prosecuted for it. It's generally um, illegal in a lot of senses or at least amoral um, where it's not outright illegal. Um, so they're, they're levering that out. The other thing they talk about is in the decentralized exchanges. If we move things out and there have been things like um, the Zero X project and, and a few others, they say essentially those miners can not front run, but do something very similar where they process their transactions um, in a different order to maybe take an advantage of uh, prices moving up or moving down. Um, of course, a miner inside of a blockchain is the one that orders transactions and declares what is the valid truth at some given point of time. Um, so they could take advantage of this inside of an exchange. Okay, uh, so Colin, a whole bunch of interesting stuff in this blog post. I um, would recommend people check it out without question. There's um, definitely the pros and cons of these emerging models. Um, and I do think it's interesting that they're putting these sorts of thinking out there into into the public uh, domain. And definitely as we talk to and look to uh, institutions coming into this space who have looked at illiquid markets as being one of the major risks of kind of moving into some of the smaller crypto assets, then there's definitely an opportunity opportunity for fairer auction-based markets to maybe play a role in, in resolving some of that. Yeah. And before we tune out of this, one thing I'll just point out, um, 
it's probably not the greatest idea that these guys put a picture of a tulip on their blog post. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Although I do wonder if that was somewhat self-aware. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. Speaking of new things that are coming along, uh, the last story we've got time for this week is one uh, I picked up in NASDAQ, but I think it's been pretty much everywhere. So Cardano, the Ethereum of Japan, uh, jumps to the top six, um, so in the, into the top six cryptocurrencies by market cap. Um, so Cardano describes itself as the Ethereum of Japan, uh, jumping from uh, two US dollar cents to about 52 US dollar cents in the space of a month. Um, decentralized public blockchain and cryptocurrency project and developing a smart contract platform, which seeks to deliver, quote, more advanced features than any other protocol. According to the uh, company's website, Cardano's worth in excess of 12 billion US dollars. So the website is cardanohub.org. Um, there's a few interesting things as you click around in this. They've, um, they've definitely done the, done a lot of due diligence work as you read their whycardano.com. Um, this is uh, quite a long read, quite a lot to it. Um, but at the same time, it appears that there's not a lot of code out there. Um, it's PDFs. There's, uh, they're taking a scientific approach. Lots of this has been peer reviewed and, uh, they've definitely gone their own route, um, with some of the excitement around building a proof-of-stake-based consensus uh, and mining setup that claims to be as secure as Bitcoin's proof-of-work, but much faster and much more efficient. Um, and of course, famously, Charles Hoskinson, who was involved very early in Ethereum and then BitShares and several other projects, is deeply involved in this one as well. So, Colin, uh, what are your reactions to this one? Uh, I think $12 billion is a lot of money for um, some PDFs and uh, a website. Uh, Look, I it they've got a lot of great ideas and they've got a lot of great people behind. Um, I, I know the Cardona Foundation brought in uh, Michael Minnelli. Doctor Doctor Minnelli is uh, very well researched on everything that's blockchain before we even called these things blockchains. It's good to see that they're getting traction. They're getting networks around. Um, I know Chris Berniski always talks about um, network value in these things. Um, it was very interesting. Somebody pointed out of the top 10 cryptocurrencies, uh, Cardano included, uh, two of them didn't yet have networks. Um, so if we're talking about network value, that's uh, that's hard to believe how this happens. So a lot of faith in this, a lot of anticipation. Um, personally, I I am going to wait and and see before I uh, move any money into this or make any. Yes, yeah, uh, so you way. can understand the perspective from the third party observer that uh, here is one of the people who was involved early on in Ethereum, one of the people involved early on in BitShares, um, both of which went on to uh, increase uh, in profile and value. And therefore, people are just looking for it to do a repeat. And without question, the, the website is worth a read just at face value because there are some interesting ideas in there. Uh, we don't give investment advice out on this show, and we would encourage everybody to do their research. Um, but it's certainly getting a lot of hype and traction at the moment. Um, but also, um, we've seen a week in which uh, we've been in bizarro world and continue to be in bizarro world. I mean, Ripple's value uh, spiked nearly 3x, was it, um, at one point when it was listed on uh, Coinbase's GDAP? Uh, so we are going through strange times, Colin. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think that uh, anybody that's followed this for more than a uh, couple of hours has seen the absolute volatility in all of these, especially as you start to move down the list of um, you know network values. Um, Ripple is one that historically has had a relatively low value uh, volume of trades for the size of the the network value. Um, so. Uh, uh, 
very small investment can move this thing a lot. They had some big news, uh, which tends to make this thing go up. Uh, this last week was just a very extreme uh, case of that. Unquestionably, if you're a fund manager or if you work anywhere for uh, helping institutions invest, you look at this market and see it as, as very strange and, and very hard to pulse. Um, and I can see why. The, there's a lot going on here and it takes uh, a long time to understand it. And as we said earlier, there's not a lot of that infrastructure that you'd really expect um, in, in some of the more traditional markets. Uh, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Um, Loopring, uh, a decentralized exchange and open protocol, is well worth your time and attention. Um, Loopring.org uh, is their website. Looks like um, they're doing a whole bunch of interesting stuff, and we may try and cover that on a future news show. Um, a story on Motherboard that the idea of HODL, or uh, Hold On For Dear Life, uh, HODL, is now four years old. Um, apparently, their headline is, the only good Bitcoin advice is now four years old. So... Um, that is a meme. That is something that as you get into the space, you'll hear a lot of people talking more about. And speaking of memes, um, on Reddit, the CryptoKitties team didn't ask me anything. So um, that was more than a little amusing, but also had some serious questions around security in there, I believe. I bet you read that one with a lot of interest. Congratulations on your secret Santa present of a CryptoKitty, Simon. Indeed, I'm, I'm feeling very pleased. Um, meow, uh, right meow indeed. Um, okay, so don't forget, listeners, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter by getting in touch at Chain Insider. Uh, share your thoughts um, or just give at Colin G. Platt some stick for um, not making any Crypto Kitties jokes this week or at SY Taylor if you want to pick up on anything I said as well. Or you can drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you. As a reminder, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, or anybody in the investments market understand this space better and achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just what's going on, then please do get in touch. Get in touch at hello at 11fs.co.uk or find out more on our website, 11fs.com. Okay, let's dive into the first of our interviews with Mark Jeffrey from Guardian Circle. Mark, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. I guess, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about your background and what got you interested in the subjects of blockchain, DLT, that whole space? Yeah, so um, I, I started life as a software engineer. So I had kind of the engineering background. I've been CTO and CEO at various companies over the years. Um, basically, sometime around 2013, uh, I'm friends with Brock Pierce and Michael Turpin, uh, two names you might know. And uh, they were just on and on and on about Bitcoin. And uh, I initially thought uh, it wasn't real because it sounded very much like flus, if you remember that from the 90s. So there were some, yes. other, right, some other virtual currencies. I didn't get that it was decentralized. And, and when I actually sat down and uh, tried to figure out how it worked, once I finally understood, I just went, oh, my God. And you know, I had that sort of moment that a lot of us have had. Um, I, I ran home and I wrote a book <laughs> called Bitcoin Explained Simply in 2013 once I got it because I just felt like no one had done that well yet. And then I wrote another one in 2015 called The Case for Bitcoin right after the Gox crash. And everyone was saying, ah, this is garbage. It's not real. And I was like, oh, no, this is very, very real. So, so that was kind of how I got the book. It's very, very real indeed. Now we have futures trading. And so what's the journey looked like? I guess uh, Bitcoin became real, but it's uh, maybe it's not everything. Did you find yourself uh, in the need to do a project and, and solve some of the world's problems using similar technologies? Yeah, well, I mean, in 2014, somewhere around in 2014 at the end, right at the end, 
is when I got the idea for Guardian Circle, um, which is the project I'm working on right now. Um, and that's uh, global decentralized emergency response, basically. Um, it's It started off as an app to let friends, family, and neighbors protect one another. And that was sort of the, the genesis of it. Um, as we worked on it and as it grew, um, I suddenly realized, as I started studying the 911 problem, I realized that 4 billion people have no 911 worldwide, just nothing. There's no magic number you can call. But most of them have phones, weirdly. Um, and then the other thing I realized was as I studied the problem, you know, I studied 911 in the United States, I, I got to see how terrible it is. Um, if you call 911 from a mobile device, they have no idea where you are. Uber can find you better than 911. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I could be here for the next uh, half hour on this topic. But basically, it's nowhere near as good as you think it is, and it's getting worse every day. Um, you're not, And so basically, I said, you know what? We need to just throw all this away. We need to create a new emergency grid from scratch, something that's mobile native, location aware, something where your friends, family, and neighbors are notified and in an alert room alongside with uh, official responders. But we also need a class of citizen responders that you can think of sort of like Uber drivers, uh, people who are vetted um, and trusted, but who have special skills like EMTs that are off duty, uh, ex-military. You know, basically, anytime an event happens, we should just throw an alert up to the cloud. The cloud should look down and see what people and resources are already nearby and just create a flash mob of help out of everything it can find as quickly as possible really cool idea and you mentioned uber you mentioned cloud why do i need a blockchain for that we don't and in fact we don't use the blockchain for that part of it yet and the reason why is because the blockchain is a, it's a tortoise it's not a hare and in an emergency you need a hare you need something fast now that may not always be true you know we get people working on stuff right now so that you know you have sub-second response blockchains but they're not really here yet but what you do need the blockchain for is to there's basically five different ways in which we're using it. Um, you need it for the uh, emergency response contracts and as a form of settlement, especially for the unbanked four billion people who have no nine one one. You need it so that people in our world can send uh, coin uh, to sponsor people in the developing world their safety. Um, the cool thing about that is when you send it through a you know a cryptocurrency, it's not going through a government or a bank, so you know that it was not spent inefficiently or inappropriately. Um, so that Red Cross and Haiti stuff that happened, it, it can't happen here. And the people can only spend it on emergency response solutions. So there's an element of um, price and um, spend transparency. Uh, and transparency is one of those often uh, quoted benefits. Uh, but it's it's also as transparent as the end point that receives the value. So as soon as they cash that out, they can cash it out in, in, in any way they like. They can only spend it so when they receive it, at least to begin with, they can only spend it on emergency response contracts. So basically the paid responders that I talked about, the, the way it works is you will purchase, you can use the free version with your friends, family, neighbors forever for free. That will never be charged for. But once you want the enhanced um, paid responders, you basically pay the equivalent of like 5 or $10 a month for you and me. Uh, that'll be different in India, obviously, but you know, basically it, it feels like that. And um, whenever you press the button, those responders also respond. They get paid Guardium uh, based on every hour that they're on the clock, that they're available. And of course, if they respond to an alert, they get paid a little bit more. So it's these micro economies where the amount you're moving would probably be so small that the credit card fees would 
really eat into that um, yeah. unless it was all prepaid ahead of time and you were kind of only doing cash in, cash out like an M-Pesa mobile thing. But even then, you've still got the share with the telco that you're going to have to deal with through the APIs. So by creating this micro economy, you've created um, a market for something where there is no current market uh, and where there may not be public infrastructure. Because I guess in some countries, the um, the emergency response is free. In some countries, it's a market. and some countries, it just doesn't exist. And where it's a market and where it doesn't exist, there's ways that you can create um, a more efficient market that responds faster. And where it isn't a market, you can just have a network of people who um, kind of make the thing more efficient and a, and a new technology. Yeah, and we think we can probably do it in a different way. In a lot of places where it's a market, only the rich have it. The poor got nothing. So yeah. this gives them access to something for the very first time. There's two other ways in which we use the blockchain. One is to store uh, all the alert transcripts. Uh, and because we're using mobile devices, we not only know who said what when, but where everyone was, what time they responded or did not respond. We know both things. And all that information is encrypted. It's immutable, so it's evidence. Um, and the keys to that evidence and that encryption are given to the uh, alerting party. So they have custody. We don't. Nobody else does. They decide who sees it. So you've got a micro economy that's global. You've got transparency and an audit trail that's provable. Talk to me about some of your technology choices within that. Have you gone for an Ethereum stack? Are you going for something um, more esoteric? Uh, What what choices are you making? So uh, this this will probably surprise you. Um, We have our own blockchain and our own coin. It is a fork of Litecoin. Um, It has some additional magic built into it. Uh, it basically has 51% attack mitigation, and it implements uh, SegWit's implemented on it too. So it may, I believe, it may be the first time SegWit is released uh, on a Litecoin fork. So, um, and that was uh, we actually worked with Michael Turpin and his technical team, uh, the same people behind Aspire. If you've heard of that coin, um, it's not yeah. out yet, but it's coming. Um, so basically, we worked with them because you know they're the experts on it. It's all pre-mined, um, and uh, you know, so that's why that's what we're doing. The reason we did it, which is probably going to be your next question, um, there's, there's a bunch of reasons. But the biggest ones are there's too much technical volatility with both Ethereum and Bitcoin. As we saw last, you know, past week with CryptoKitties. Uh, and then previous to that, we had already seen Civic, uh, when they did their ICO on the heels of status, they had to shut down their ICO because Ethereum, the entire Ethereum network was just unusable for a day. Our blockchain will be, I mean, the emergencies aren't on the blockchain, but Payments and other things will be, and the uh, and the transcripts will be on the blockchain. We cannot afford to have any sort of flicker like that. Um, and so, because we're dealing with emergencies, our tolerance for that sort of stuff is just low. So we just felt, you know, the smart choice for now would be to put it all on our own blockchain. That doesn't mean in the future, as sort of the public um, things like EOS, for example, uh, become available and more real, we might. Go. We might move it over to to one of those blockchains, but for right now, today we felt this is the best choice. Interesting set of choices. I guess two follow-ons, if I may. Uh, on one side, um, the technical stack that's not to do with the blockchain. Uh, just I'm guessing that's your standard DevOps looking stuff. Um, your, all your Web two, AWS type stuff. And then on the blockchain side, what were the what was the delta that public key cryptography could have given you versus what this blockchain design gives you? Like what, what's the delta between the two and why, why you felt the need for the blockchain? So, uh, so to address your first question, so we're on a, everything's AWS. 
Uh, we're in multiple region servers around the world. Um, we have working apps. They're Cordova. They're built on Cordova, um, so that we could release them simultaneously on iOS and Android. And let me tell you, that was very painful. Um, but we, you know, it took us like a year of pain to kind of get that right. Bottom line, um, we learned a lot. We learned that SMS doesn't work very reliably in a lot of countries. Didn't know that when we started. We also learned that on versions of Android, certain versions, uh, they they don't implement web web sockets according to the standard. They're just like, no, nope, we don't feel like doing that. So we had to write our own web sockets layer. So just you know, that could go on forever. There's a whole bunch of pain we got through. Uh, but we now have those two apps. We also have a Alexa version. So you can speak your alert to your Alexa device. And that will, you know, so if you fall in and you can't get up, uh, you can just yell and uh, that will trigger the alert. Um, we also have an open API, in, uh, which is being used by a whole bunch of people to create um, alerts, panic button, jewelry, and other alert devices. Um, we're the partner on the Women's Safety X Prize. Um, so with the XPRIZE Foundation, that's basically where most of these people are coming from that are creating alert devices. So Really cool. So that gives me the tech side. And then on, my second question is, um, what does the blockchain give you that public key cryptography wouldn't have? Well, I mean, the blockchain gives us all the, you know, the magical things like the immutability of the transcripts. Uh, one thing I haven't talked about yet is we also allow for an emergency information lockbox. So this is a basically a place where you can create a record of all the stuff you don't want anyone to know about unless you're in trouble. So that might be your secret health issue. It could be where you hid the key in your front yard, that sort of thing. It's only unlocked when you uh, create an emergency alert, and it's only accessible to the people that you designate. So it's a multi-sig solution. There probably, to answer your question, there are probably other ways we could have done this, but because the tide of the world and the, the big world effect and all the innovation that we're eventually uh, going to benefit from as a rising tide li- rises all boats, lifts all boats, uh, is in the blockchain space. So, you know, really, that's probably the biggest reason why we want that direction instead of perhaps another option. So, yeah, and, and I guess building governance around something that's managing public key cryptography, improving its transparency is a little harder. But I guess who are your miners? Who are your, uh, you said you were all pre-mined. Who, who are your nodes? Where, how are your nodes looking? Are you running the whole thing? We are running the whole thing right now. Uh, in the future, we will hand off, um, you know, we'll allow other people to process transactions. And in the future, our intent is to actually put the alerts and uh, the alert processing and all of that stuff on the blockchain also. I just can't handle it yet. Um, so eventually, there will be nodes in the hands of a lot of other people around the world uh, that are processing emergencies. And the act of processing transaction will be the act of running this new 911 grid that will encircle the planet. So, uh, you know, baby steps at a time. I got to make sure, I, I got to be conservative right out of the gate and make sure all this stuff works for the first rollouts. So, so you've got your arms around it now to make sure it works, but your vision is that actually there would be many other organizations, emergency service organizations, countries, and whatever else, uh, making this product and project work by running nodes within it so that it actually becomes a network that wherever you go in the world you have access to um but but unlike an uber i guess that it, it could work without you as it could work without guardian circle incorporated i guess yes that is the vision ultimately we just sort of step away and we want other people to make apps that are guardian uh compatible and use guardian for maybe even different things than what we envisioned when we began it so a lot of people are talking about the fact that 
Um, you know, we'll be able to transfer Guardian between accounts just by knowing their phone number. Um, and that in itself may, uh, it, that combined with the philanthropy and the, the network we're going to set up for people in our world to send money directly to sponsor, the, to sponsor people in the developing world for safety is one way in which that could be used. There are other philanthropic uses of that as well. The X Prize has already noticed this and said, Oh, geez, you could use it for lots of things. We're like, Yes, we want you to. So, um, so I, I do think that stuff is coming. So, you talked about X Prize a couple of times. Give me a feel for who your partners are and how this thing's going to reach scale. How are you going to get um, people to pay attention to this and, and how's it going to get uh, mass adoption? So, our, well, our first foray is through the X Prize Foundation. Um, we're the partner on the Women's Safety X Prize. Um, basically, they expect so, so the, the prize itself is a hardware competition. So all these people are trying to make devices for under $40 um, that a woman can wear. They're trying to solve the problem of women's safety. When women are sexually assaulted in India and they go to the cops, the cops come, but then the cops assault them. So the answer is not more cops. So the answer is some sort of citizen response. And so they saw what we had built and they said, oh, geez, Guardian Circle has solved the problem of how to assemble a flash mob of help and how to create a citizen response. But they haven't solved the problem of the panic button device. When you're under assault, an app's not good enough. You need like a, a button on a ring or a watch or something like that. And so, uh, but that's really hard to do because you have to have a lot of battery power, uh, a lot of resiliency. So when you bang it on the table, it doesn't break or spill water on all that stuff. Hardware problems. So somebody is going to build the device. Somebody's going to win. The X Prize has said uh, that they expect that they will get. Uh, the government of India has committed to distributing a certain number of these devices. They believe it will be as high as 50 million people over 2018 and 2019. They're hoping to get it as high as 400 million people by 2022. So it's a pretty big rollout to begin with. So we're just starting to plan that with them now. That's a really great partner to start with, and uh, hopefully many more to come. Uh, so, Mark, uh, where can people find out more about Guardian Circle and Guardian? So, Guardian, uh, we're in our token sale right now. That is at tokensale.guardiancircle.com. Uh, the pre-sale is happening at the moment. The public sale will be on January 22nd. Uh, if you want to learn more about Guardian Circle or download the apps that we have today, because we do have working tech, unlike certain other folks I won't mention, but we have working things. And those things are at guardiancircle.com. Brilliant. Mark, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to hear about Guardian Circle and what's coming in the future. Uh, certainly uh, some interesting things around emergency response. Uh, and next, let's get to our next interview with uh, Paul Forrest of MNS Solutions. And Paul talks a little bit about the talent needs in the industry. I'm joined by Paul Forrest from MBN. Paul, how are you, sir? I'm very good, thanks. It's great to be here. Paul, uh, from MBN, you guys look after the people and resource from emerging tech areas at MBN. But you put out a study recently uh, with some kind of responses to some research, some questionnaires that you did in the blockchain space. Can you give me some highlights of, of what you found? Sure. So we... we frequently put out surveys which are designed to augment or supplement events that we put on. And we recently held the Scott Chain event, which followed up from the City Chain event we held at the start of the year. And as part of that, we try to sample attitudes and understanding of what's going on in the industry. So really trying to put something out which uh, gauged the extent to which 
the business community was starting to grasp the, the, the metal around blockchain and what it might mean to them. At the same time as sampling with a relatively large community of, of tech players in and around some of the more well-known blockchain ventures to see what they thought was happening and what that actually meant to them, their livelihoods and their future. So we had around 200 uh, participants. It was um, a relatively broad um, uh, survey itself. It asked questions ranging from where we thought use cases might be in the future, what the dominant ask was in terms of people looking at their, their innovation spend over the next couple of years, and who was really gearing up to do something quite substantial. Given that we had a large community of FTSE 350 in the, in the survey sample, it gave us quite an informed response, and we think it was an interesting set of answers and one that we'll focus on more with the future events that we conduct. All right. Useful to have the data. So tell me a little bit about some of the some of the things that stood out to you from the responses. Sure. Well, there'll be no surprises in there in that for uh, many of the business community, they're still struggling with block what mm-hmm. and the extent to which they have really understood what it might do for them and what it might mean for them or what it might mean more importantly for the competitive environment they live in is, uh, is, is a bit of a challenge. And for many of them, there are some quite dismissive remarks coming in with the, well, you know, this is nothing new, is it? And it's just another tech fad which is likely to lead to us spending a big chunk of change on something we don't really need and can't really use. However, and it's an important however, There were statistics coming in very firmly that suggested this was on the radar and it was understood well enough to have got them to the start line of saying, here's some cash we've ring-fenced and over the course of the next 18, 24 or 36 months, we're doing something. But it feels kind of resigned, doesn't it? It's like, oh, here's another new tech. Here's a bit of money. Go figure it out. Go see if my smart people, my kids in the corner can do something with it versus really having a view as to what the value drivers of having market structure that's decentralized and pushing cost out of the organization, pushing paper out of the organization, the competitive advantages of being able to have supply chains that are transparent or energy markets that are more transparent or uh, to really unlock liquidity liquidity that's stuck within supply chains as one set of examples people tend to talk about tech for tech's sake rather than value propositions did any value propositions sort of uh, type responses come through for you yeah so the interesting thing was that they they tended to be biased if you pick the tech community who participated in the survey it tended to be biased towards those things we would expect in and around fintech uh, possibly because that's where the most mature set of practitioners were at present living, or certainly at the time of the survey, were living. But if you spoke to the business community, we were getting some quite interesting um, rankings around where the use cases were and what they were focusing on. Smart contracts came out at the top of the list, habitually. So people looking at it as part of the fabric of their business rather than as a uh, a go-to solution. So people weren't thinking cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. They were thinking smart contracts. How can this enable or smooth out the way in which we have a relationship with people who sit within our supply chain or who sit within our downstream customer base. We also had quite a lot of people looking at that whole supply chain transformation piece. And it was quite exciting that some of the larger uh, companies in the FTSE 350 who participated were anchoring some of their blockchain ventures in and around supply chain re-engineering or transformation does seem to be that one use case where people keep seeing value because there are a lot of actors, 
a lot of countries, no obvious place to centralize, no obvious jurisdiction over that supply chain. So therefore, something that allows me to have a workflow that operates across all of these actors in a supply chain or across my value chain generally and orchestrate technology across all of those people to have a straight through process across all of them could be really exciting especially if you're dealing with the cost of paper getting lost on a day-to-day basis and the legal fees and the friction and and all of the challenges that are there sure and i i think a lot of people historically uh traditionally have had issues relating to global trade and global supply chain becomes a bit of a challenge when you start to look at some of the legal issues in there we've had this wonderful uh, legal instrument that's existed for many years in and around inco terms which which basically empowers and enables that international trade and transaction processing. But there's been nothing really from a technological perspective to underpin that or support it or to build that transparency and efficiency into it. Blockchain definitely offers the the promise of that. Talk to me about talent. There's definitely an explosion in new languages, new potential skill sets. The subject was born almost by nerds for nerds but now we see that uh, as you say the the FTSE 300 there are companies that arguably are the non-financial ones starting to reach around looking for do I have the right talent in the organization are they approaching this in the right way and is the right talent out there okay there's a few questions in there so I'll try and unravel one or two of those one or two of those for you Uh, So the survey suggested that there was uh, a lot of talent out there. However, when you delved down into some of the statistics and some of the rhetoric and some of the anecdotal comments provided, you realised quite a few people had had false starts here and had been, dare I use the term, had been suckered into making quite expensive hiring decisions which had gone badly wrong because they'd, they'd found people who came with the promise of understanding distributed ledger technology to the extent that they could come in and just take the whole thing and get on with it. Uh, And in reality, they'd probably done little more than familiarise themselves or socialise the concepts of DLT and blockchain, Uh, but had come with a strong Java background or strong coding background and uh, had jumped in feet first to do something, question mark, what? And I guess also this would have been looking back when you sent the survey out. When was the survey sent? So the survey was conducted over the course of uh, Q1 and 2 this year. And so that would have probably been people's experiences through 2016 and Q1. They were starting to reflect in that survey. And I guess at that time we were still seeing Corda didn't have a 1.0, Hyperledger didn't have a 1.0. A lot of the tooling that's coming around the Ethereum platform has now matured significantly and indeed as you say the you almost did at one point need a hardcore core developer somebody who was very close to the underlying platform code of of blockchain and dlt to achieve anything that that may be changing now Uh, i think that is definitely changing and again some of the rhetoric around tools and use of tools certainly for the proof of concept stage uh, suggests that, that that's easing the way in terms of resourcing However, there is still a fundamental resourcing gap when it comes to that that um, uh, that, that beast that most organisations struggle to find and recruit and retain. Uh, somebody who can operate as an effective bridge between the rhetoric that sits at board level and what the techies can genuinely deliver. And that bridge is, is, is missing in blockchain, largely because it's still relatively immature in the sense that we don't have many 
battle-scarred veterans walking out of initiatives where they're able to say, well, this is why you need to think about these things in this way, and this is why you need to approach it this way. And I think the ones that there are, I look at Carsten Stocker, who from uh, Enology and RWE, I look at uh, Alex Batlin at BNY Mellon, I look at folks uh, like uh, our own Colin Platt here in 11FS who have been there and done it and have had to explain it to the board and have had to deliver those proof of concepts and have had to try and plumb them into real-world systems. There aren't many of those people, and it's, why would they it's stay? A small in, audience, yeah. It, and why would they stay in one organisation? Because then they've become valuable. Because that skill is extremely rare. Yeah, it becomes a commodity in its own right, but it will take time to become a commodity. And whilst you can make the most of it being a high added value activity, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely not. So, what, what advice are you giving to people looking for talent in this space at the moment? Uh, well, inevitably, it's to look closer because you'll find that there are a lot of people, often in house who have access to, have already uh, grasped the metal here, and they, they really understand how to do something, but they're, uh, they're almost capable, um, willing resource, prepared to take that personal risk and dive into something in this area, looking for a use case to get their teeth into. As somebody who was that person inside of a bank, I can say that that's very likely the case. And I was really fortunate to have some fantastic bosses who took me under their wing and shielded me from a lot of the organization, exposed me to other parts of the organization and really put me on their shoulders and said, this is this is our person. We, we really want you to succeed. Uh, and again, I look at Amber Baldet at uh, JP Morgan as somebody who's in a, in a similar position still inside an organization and many, many others who I'm not naming and, and should be. Uh, there, there are these these people out there, but they all started as that person inside the organization. And so how do you marry that mixture of experience externally and internally? Do you think there's value in external experience and where should you be looking for that? Uh, Yeah, sure. I I think there's a lot of value in external experience. But I think here, um, one of the challenges that we found in the survey was that the bit that is often missing from some of the more technical resource, even where they've, they've got time served experience in and around blockchain ventures, it tends to be the domain expertise that's necessary. So actually, almost targeting resource on the basis of um, early stage proof of concepts in the areas and the domains where you're looking to push into. So if you're looking to, to, to launch some form of healthcare venture, and that featured in our top eight use cases, then finding someone who's got relevant domain expertise and maybe done a little bit in and around some early stage blockchain development is probably your starting point. Sadly, what that means is you're probably going to be cannibalizing a fairly small community of people and doing your best to raid the resources that other people are desperately mm. trying to hang on to. Feels like there's a talent war coming. I think it's, it's we're on the cusp. Wow, uh, good to know. So if people want to learn more about your survey, more about NBN, how do, how do they do that? Uh, you can visit our website, nbnsolutions.com, or you can uh, follow our, our Twitter feed. We put out uh, various... Uh, slices from the survey on a regular basis we talked about it at our last conference in scott chain and um, we'll be holding another city chain event at the ibm headquarters just after christmas sometime q1 next year so stay tuned for that we will look out for that i uh, did enjoy myself at city chain paul forrest thank you very much for being with us on blockchain insider you're welcome A big thank you to Paul and thank you to uh, all of our guests, to Mark and Pete, and of course my regular co-host, GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Thank you. 
I hope you have a good week. Colin, um, listeners, um, so that you know, next week we won't be doing a new show, giving it to the Christmas break. Um, but we'll, we've had two great interviews in the can, uh, one with uh, Tim Swanson, in which it'll always be fireworks. So we do recommend you check that out. Um, and if you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.